challenging himself and us too. Here's Pastor Ed Ray. Are we going to walk in the wilderness and refuse to trust God for things in our life? Things? Giants. That's why they didn't go in. Giants were overwhelming them. They didn't believe God could get them past the giants, even though they believed he could get them out of slavery. Sound familiar? People get saved out of slavery to sin, but then get stuck. Because God shows them something that they should do that's way beyond their comfort zone. Zion, now filled with hands, and in this place gotta dwell with man. Sick be healed, and the crippled stand singing hallelujah. My kingdom built with the blood of my son, selfless sacrifice for everyone. Faith, hope, love, and harmony. I said, let this world know me by your love. Fear. The wrong use of our imagination kills more dreams than failure, someone once wisely observed. Of course, you know the old adage, nothing ventured, nothing gained. Well, hello and welcome to Grow in Grace. If you were with us last time, you'll remember we were reminded of how unbelief robs us of the abundant life the Lord wants us to have. There's a rest that we enter into by faith. And we pick up in Hebrews chapter four, Beginning by reading our scripture, here's Pastor Ed. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, not a great translation, let us be careful of lest any of you seem to have come short of finding that rest of it. So, promise, a promise remains. This word is used 14 times in the book of Hebrews, more than any other place in the Bible. So what's the promise that you and I would have rest in this life with God. So, it is a promise of God to do something for us. Now, the word rest in English, we have one word for it. In Greek, there's four words for it. It means Sabbath rest, the seventh day. Okay, now, here's the clue to this section. On the seventh day, God rested. He said it is good. If you go back and read Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, you find that it's the only day that God created that he didn't say, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening and there was morning the second day. There was evening and morning there was the third day, all the way up to the seventh day, and it just says that he rested. The point, God is still resting. He did all the work. He didn't rest because he was tired. (laughs) He rested because everything that needed to be done was done. We'll come back to that again. That's the Sabbath rest. There's a Canaan rest that it's talking about here. Again, walking in the Spirit, not going to heaven. Then there's a rest of conscience. I have a clean conscience, no guilt, no worry, no anxiety because I know my sins are forgiven because I did all that I could do, which was confess my sin, and he did all that was needed He took my sins and he washed them all away. Jesus said, come to me, all you are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So my yoke is easy, my burden is light. So you will find rest for your souls. That's a rest of conscience. And lastly, eternal rest, which is the final rest. We'll spend eternity with God. The rest that we look forward to. Lest any of you should come up short. The Greek construction, 
in this phrase says that their heart remained unchanged and unbelieving. So the difficulty is our heart. God always looks at the heart. The heart, the center of our being, not the muscle slightly left of center. But for the Jew, the heart was a place where conscience resides, where it's the final arbitrator of choices, of decisions to be made. We still say, you know, my heart is broken over so-and-so. They understood it was a muscle that pumped blood, but they ascribed to it something more important, that it's the center of the authentic person. It's who you really are. And God looks there when... Samuel was sent to anoint a new king for Israel. He went to Bethlehem, and there he talked to Jesse. He asked Jesse to bring his sons by, and all his sons went by. The first one was a tall, handsome guy, and uh, Samuel's about ready to anoint him as the new king, and God said, no, no, no. He's not my chosen. Man looks on the outward part. God looks on the heart. And he said, well, that's scary. Well, it is, unless your heart's been changed, because you have a black pirate's heart, and so do I left to myself, if it wasn't for Jesus taking out that heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh. So God looks on the heart that he gave you and the heart that you're going to have when he finishes with you right before he takes you home. So you and I need have no worry about heart. The French mathematician and philosopher Pascal said, we come to know truth, not only reason, but still more so through our hearts. We understand heart. We know truth through our heart. A simple translation, you have a baloney meter. Again, the heart is an arbitrator of truth. Let us be careful. Examine ourselves. Verse 2, for indeed, the good news, the gospel, verse 2, was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. This is a controversial scripture because of the word gospel, good news. Now, in the New Testament, it's clearly the glad tidings of Jesus coming and dying for our sins. Some take this to mean that the good news of the Messiah coming and dying for our sins is in the Old Testament, and they heard it. I don't believe that's what this is saying because the word good news can be any kind of good news. It was a secular term. The good news that they heard was through, for example, David, who said, God, I'm so glad that you do not count my iniquities, that you forgive and you cast my sins as far as the east is from the west. David understood that his sins could be forgiven. That's good news. He didn't understand it was the Messiah, God the Son, who would come and die in his place, but he certainly knew the good news of sins forgiven. It's a small point, but I didn't want you to stumble on that word. Gospel in the Old Testament? So, the reason that it didn't profit them, because it was not mixed with faith, he said. And again, faith is acting on your belief. It's something that you do. Because you believe, because you trust, then you act. It is putting your beliefs into action. They stood at Kadesh Barnea, which is what this is describing, at the edge of the promised land. They believed that there was a promised land over there. They could see it. They sent in 12 spies, and they came back and told them about it. They believed it was a land of milk and honey. Uh, they had huge grape clusters that they brought back. 
they believed it was there. They believed it was as good as God had said, but they did not believe that God could get them in. Faith is more than belief in this context. Faith is acted on belief. It is actually stepping out. It is obeying. It is doing the thing that you're afraid of. Why didn't they go in Kadesh Barnea? Because there were giants in there. That's the whole picture here. They had no faith in God. They said, we can't do that. God said, I will do it. But all they could get in their mind was that they weren't big enough. They weren't strong enough. They weren't able to. That translates to you and I today in the same way. I can't talk to people. That's what Moses said. God said, you will. (laughs) And so you and I need to say, all right, Lord, if that's what you want me to do, you have to do it in me. And then be careful after he does it in you, you don't say, oh, I knew I could do it anyway. No, 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 no. God does it in you and give him the credit for it. Four, verse three, we who have believed do enter the rest. We put our faith into action. But as he had said to the unbelievers, so I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Okay, so the first part is something we've seen before. They shall not enter my rest. It will be repeated again four times in this section of the book of Hebrews. The word believed, for we have believed, we entered, is an important word. Technically, it means to entrust something to someone else, to another. To entrust something to someone else, to another person, God. I can't do this, Lord, but I'll trust you to get me there, so I'm going to open the door. I'm going to try and walk through it. If I fall on my face, I I heard you wrong. But if it works, I know that you did it in me. So, to entrust something to another is the picture here. To enter into rest from something. What are you resting from? Works righteousness. That we would work to be righteous with God. That we would do religious things so that God would have to let us into heaven. So that I would help people so that I could prove to God that I was good enough to go to heaven. I'm not. You're not. That in fact, it's by grace we have been saved through faith. It is not of ourselves. It's not of works so that none of us can boast. That's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's a gift from God, but he gladly gives it. He's not stingy. He's not withholding it. He gives it to anyone who asks. I'll give it to you. Just ask me. That's his simple statement. And then believe that you have it. That's the tricky part. That's what he's talking about. Act like you own salvation without being boastful or arrogant about it. Paul said it this way, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able, God is able, to keep that which I have committed unto him until and against that day. I know whom I have believed. I trust God's going to get me into the rest. Rest here, but eternal rest too. You're listening to Grow in Grace with Pastor Ed Ray. 
who's expounding on the rest we have in the Lord, a rest we enter into by faith. Now with part two of today's teaching and how and when this rest was accomplished from Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 3, here's Pastor Ed. Rest based on the finished work. Now, here's where it gets a little tricky, the last part of this. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the earth, put your thinking cap on a minute. The works were Jesus dying on a cross for you and I. How could they be finished before the earth was created? I don't know, but I know that they were. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. But let me take it apart just a second so at least you can get into your mind the possibility of God being in other dimensions besides this one. The way that works, I don't understand completely. It's called string theory in physics, or M. For those of you that want to go study it, there's an expert in it at UC Riverside. And it is the concept that there are four known dimensions that we live in, that the distance from here to the wall, the distance from that wall to that wall, and the distance from the floor up, those three dimensions. But there's a fourth dimension called time. I was there just an instant ago, but now in time I'm over here. Okay, there's another dimension. Actually, there's probably nine, perhaps 11 dimensions. Why is that important? Somehow, from the foundation of the earth, because God said it was going to happen, Jesus was already crucified. The works were finished from the foundation of the earth. The lamb was slain from the foundations of the earth, and it was done thousands of years before it happened, maybe through dimensions. So that's as good as I can get for you. Now that you're thoroughly, I can see, I told you that some of you are going to leave with your brow all furrowed. Dimensions? What in the world is he talking about? I thought we were studying Hebrews. We are. The finished work, Jesus said on the cross, to telestai, it is finished. That's the work that he's talking about. Righteousness was attained by Jesus for you. That's the good news. Verse 4. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from his works. Now, the first question that somebody asked me last night was, how come it just doesn't say Genesis 2-2? Well, there, there wasn't chapter headings in the first century. In fact, the verses weren't even numbered yet. So, he just said, you know where it is. He's speaking to Jews. They knew it was in the book of Genesis. It is the seventh day that God rested on, and it doesn't say there was morning and evening. By faith, they believed that the work was complete, already done. They believed it. They trusted that it was true, and it's the picture for you and for me that God did it. We can rest as he did because it's all done. That's the concept. Verse 5, and again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest, those who were disobedient, unbelieving. Psalm 95, verse 11, we've seen this four times. The author doesn't want us to miss that they're the example that you don't want to be if you were a Jew in the first century, and it applies to us today. They kept the Sabbath rest while they were 40 years in the wilderness, but they didn't enter the rest. He's going to say, and Joshua took them into the promised land, Canaan, but they didn't have rest there either because it wasn't a geographic place, because it wasn't a day. It was belief. Just let that hang a minute. We'll come back to it here. Since, therefore, it remains that some must enter it, yet to enter it, 
And those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. And he's building the case that God still promises to this day, as the quote from Psalm 95 said. Now, step back a minute and look at the time frame. 2,000 years B.C. is Abraham. 1,400 B.C. is the Exodus, Moses, and Joshua. 1,000 B.C. is King David. Jesus is at zero or four B.C., the center. You and I are at 2,000 A.D. So what the author is about ready to do is to blow your mind if you're not conscious of that. And he says, well, Moses told him first, then Joshua took him in the land, and then 400 years later, David wrote about it in Psalm 95, okay? That's where this is going. Verse 7, again, he designates a day and said in David, today, after such a long time, as it has been said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. David, Psalm 95, 1000 BC, is still talking about not hardening our heart and believing that God has done the, earth, the work. Now he's going to skip backwards 400 years. Look at verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not have afterwards spoken of another day. David wouldn't have spoken of it 400 years later if it was already done. Joshua's 1400 B.C., David's 1000 B.C. The point is Joshua led to a rest that was only temporal, physical, and natural. He took them into the land of Canaan, but they didn't have spiritual rest because the greater Joshua, Jesus, he's going to argue, the greater Joshua leads to a rest that is eternal, spiritual, and supernatural, far superior to the first Joshua. Joshua is the name for Jesus, Joshua is the same in the Old Testament, 1400 B.C., as for Jesus. Verse 9, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. You can have it, I can have it. All we have to do is believe and walk in it. Verse 10, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from something. What did he cease from? Works righteousness as God did from his. There's a summary of this whole section, that you are not earning your way to heaven. I grew up in a church that said you do that you have to do enough good works, works righteousness, to show God that you are right before him, to offset all the bad works that you did. Not so. This verse speaks clearly against it. Stop working to earn heaven and accept what Jesus has done for you and rejoice in it. Be excited about it. Okay, summary. Are we going to walk in the power of the Spirit by faith, in the promised land, here now. Really, California's the promised land, so to speak, spiritually. Or are we going to walk in the wilderness and refuse to trust God for things in our life? Things? Giants. That's why they didn't go in. Big giants were overwhelming them. They didn't believe God could get them past the giants, even though they believed he could get them out of slavery. Sound familiar? People get saved out of slavery to sin, but then get stuck. Because God shows them something that they should do that's way beyond their comfort zone. Know anybody like that? That's the picture here of you and I, that we have to apply faith to our lives. You have to accept that God is able to do it. Example, I read this week about a 12-year-old boy in Northern California who witnessed a brutal murder of both of his parents. His life seemed ruined. He started getting in trouble with the law, was sent to a state institution for boys, apathetic and withdrawn. 
He was doing poorly in the schoolwork, several psychologists, and numerous therapy sessions later, nothing seemed to break through. His own defenses, young mind had thrown up. Then shortly after graduation from high school, he did get through high school, he attended a church youth meeting. He heard the accounts of several young people about the difference Christ had made in their lives. They emphasized how they gave up trying to get even with people who had sinned against them in some way. He listened intently. In time, he began to grasp this, and his life began to turn from bitter to better. Where he had been introverted and withdrawn, he gradually began to make new friends. Something still nodded him, though. Finally, he was able to pinpoint the source of his incompleteness. He still harbored hatred towards the murderer who had killed his parents and messed up his life. So, he graduated from college, and he went to law school. And while in law school, he arranged to visit the man in prison who had committed what most would call the unforgivable crime. The first visit, not so good. They were both nervous and had a hard time trying to talk to one another. But the young man was determined and went back a second time, and there was a breakthrough. He said, I've made a bargain with God. If God will wipe the slate clean for the awful hatred that I've had for you, I am willing to personally acquit you for the terrible crimes you committed against me. The prisoner was astonished and deeply moved. It softened his hardened heart, and after four more visits, he led him to Christ. Some years later, when the prisoner was finally paroled, the law student, now an attorney in Modesto, California, helped him to get a job and start a new life. What giants are you facing? I don't like to tell people about Jesus. Letter this week from one of you, two days ago. Young lady writes, a couple of months ago, God placed in my path a very sick elderly gentleman. The first time I met him, the thought came like lightning into my mind. I was seeing a dying man, and out of my mouth popped these words, do you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? That was her giant. She couldn't talk to people about God. I know it was the Holy Spirit speaking through me, because little did I know, he was so miserable, his life was so bad that he was contemplating suicide. He had a gun and was going to end it. I told him the story of my own conversion and the scriptures where I know God touched my shoulder and spoke to me through scripture. Until then, the Bible was just a book, but once my eyes were opened, it was awesome. This elderly man told me I was the first person who had spoken of God in scripture that made sense. I had the privilege of leading him to the Lord and I was so humbled that God had used me. I soon realized that the privilege with it came a responsibility to continue answering questions. He had a lot of good questions over the next months. I would just open myself up to the Holy Spirit and let my answers come through him. He was raised in an orphanage, never married, so he had no one to help him. He does now, and at first he didn't understand why I was helping him. I wanted to let you know that my friend came to church Sunday before last and he was overwhelmed. During worship, he kept tearing up and saying, there's something here. There's something here. He continues to be very sick and has exploratory surgery next week. I wanted to share this small piece of this awesome story with you. She conquered her giant. How about you? We're going and growing through Hebrews right now on Grow in Grace with Pastor Ed Ray. If you missed a portion of today's study, simply go online to thepackinghouse.org and you'll find our programs are archived there for you. We can also send you a CD copy if that's preferred. 
Here's where to reach us, 844-77-GRACE. Again, that's 844-77-GRACE. Today, we'd like to offer you an inspirational book from Elizabeth Elliot called Through Gates of Splendor. This classic bestseller recalls the story of five missionaries who dared to share the good news with a Stone Age tribe deep in the jungles of Ecuador. And while they were martyred for their faith in Jesus, their story lives on, inspiring thousands to follow in their courageous footsteps. Through Gates of Splendor, our featured resource is available for a gift of any amount to grow in grace. You can give us a call at 844-77-GRACE. That's 844-77-GRACE. And thank you for helping us get out the good news of Jesus to a world in need. Pastor Ed Ray writes a daily devotional that you can access through our website. You can read these biblical and relevant devotionals at thepackinghouse.org. And look for us on His Channel TV, where we're studying Colossians right now. Our series in Hebrews continues next time we meet, and we hope you can join us for that. This has been Grow in Grace with Pastor Ed Ray, a daily presentation of the Packing House Christian Fellowship. Zion, now filled with hands, and in this place God will dwell with man. Sit deal and the crippled stand singing hallelujah. My kingdom built with the blood of my son, selfless sacrifice for everyone. Faith, hope, love, and harmony. I said let this world know me by your